I'm not sure what you actually know about Jesus. I often find that, that people know less than they'd, they'd actually like to admit. People have their prejudices, they have their kind of uh, preconceptions, usually kind of mingled with some old wives' tales and just a bit of plain old ignorance often. And so I ask, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And I don't mean the Jesus of kind of twee picture postcard nativity scene or the Jesus that you might kind of quickly Google and find on Wikipedia some information or some kind of other watered down, politically correct, historically redacted media post. No, who's the Jesus of history? And what does the historic evidence tell us about him? Let's say you, you're going to meet someone for the first time. Uh, you would hope that they would give you a kind of a, a fairer hearing, wouldn't you? You'd want them to find out actually who you are. Not just kind of some third party kind of hearsay or rumour. You'd want them to know who you are. So why do any less for Jesus? And that is why we as a church, we're going to find ourselves back in, in Matthew's Gospel over the last few years, we've kind of done little section by little section, going back into this gospel account uh, written by uh, Matthew. It's an historic account of Jesus. And, and now we find ourselves in chapters 11 and 12. And we're going to do that. We'll be here up until Christmas. And let me tell you, it's an opportunity, even if you're here just this week, it's an opportunity for you to meet the real Jesus. Uh, to find what it means to be in his good eternal kingdom, to understand what it truly means to follow him. And the big question, of course, is, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? It's been such a privilege to dedicate Beatrice today. I know she's not here right now. But did you know that her name actually means bringer of joy? And of course she is. And Lindsay, to family, to us. And she's a bringer of joy, isn't she? What a blessing she is in that way. But if we're honest, she's also a bringer of a lot of annoyance. And a lot of sleepless nights. And there'll be times when, perhaps when she gets slightly older, maybe now, that she just throws her food. Lots across, you know, the floor. And uh, she'll be tired. there'll be times where she will blankly, completely ignore mum and dad. I could go on, but I think you probably get the picture. Yes, she is a bringer of joy, but she is not perfect. And as Neil and Lindsay emailed me just this week, they reminded me that, that they have to continually remind themselves that, that she, this beautiful baby, Beatrice, can never be the ultimate bringer of joy. Which is why they as parents and we as church and family and friends here will be praying that Beatrice will one day know the ultimate bringer of joy. And the question is, do you want to meet him? Do you want to know him? Now, he's called Jesus. And we're going to meet him in the, this morning in the pages of his word to us, the Bible. Now, if I'm really honest, before we kind of dive in, I want to kind of put a little, you know, one of those like, public warnings or stamps uh, on this, because as you do meet Jesus, perhaps for the first time, freshly, newly, and you come to him and you hear him speak, it is extraordinary sometimes. You need to hear the warning. He may surprise you. And he may even offend you. Be warned. 
Let me give you a, a little bit of context where, where we are kind of in Matthew's gospel. In, in the previous section, in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus had been performing loads of miracles. He goes from this place to another place, does a miracle. And all of this to kind of is witnessed and verified by all the people, the bystanders there. And then in chapter 10, Jesus does what he does throughout Matthew's gospel. He then goes and teaches. He, he preaches. It's like a, a sermon. He takes his disciples to one side and he says, you guys, I want you now to go out and to perform miracles like me. I empower you to do so. And that is to show he has the power to establish this kingdom of God, which he teaches about. They go out. They're also told to expect opposition for what they're teaching and what they're doing. And it's nothing less than Jesus and all his followers will experience. And so chapter 11 begins, it's like every one of the kind of the sections of Matthew's gospel. Look at chapter 1, sorry, 11 verse 1, and you'll see it says this. After Jesus had finished instructing. That happens five times in the book of Matthew. Uh, chapter 10, Jesus is teaching, it's like a sermon, and now in chapter 11 it begins after he finished. And, and now we get a, another bunch of little stories, times where Jesus goes to certain places and does certain things, and that ends in chapter 13. Well, what happens in our passage today? It's interesting, isn't it? We're brought into a conversation between John the Baptist and, and Jesus to begin with. Uh, Jesus is uh, teaching and preaching in Galilee, we see, evidenced historically, verse 1. Then in verse 2, we get John the Baptist, don't we, brought into the story. He's in prison. Now, just so you know those two characters. Uh, we've got John the Baptist uh, and Jesus. They're not, they are related, but not really closely. Their mothers were part of the same wider family. We read back, though, if you were to flip back to chapter chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel, we're introduced to John the Baptist there. Because John the Baptist there is, is out in the wilderness there. He's teaching and preaching. And Jesus comes out to him and he says, you've got to baptise me. That's kind of referenced a little bit in our passage today. And after Jesus was baptised, we read in chapter 3, a voice from heaven said, this one is my son, with whom I love and with him I am well pleased. That's the first interaction with Jesus and John the Baptist. If you were to flip forward to chapter 14, it gets a bit grisly because that's where John the Baptist's head is taken off by Herod. It's, he's beheaded. And so we sit here in this middle section in chapter 11 and John is in prison. He's not sure what's going to happen, but that's, that is what happens in chapter 14. And here we are, he's in prison. He sends a message to Jesus. Look at it in verse 3. He says, are you, Jesus, the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Should we expect someone else? It feels like John has expectations about who Jesus is, and Jesus isn't fulfilling those expectations for John. He's looking for something better, something different. In reality, John the Baptist is doubting who Jesus is, which is extraordinary, isn't it? You think back to the baptism in, in Matthew chapter 3. He's seen and heard a voice from God, a voice from heaven, saying, this is my son, this is the promised one, this is the son of God. He's heard and seen all that. And now still languishing in prison, he goes, is there something better to come? How do I know, Jesus, you're really the one? Interestingly, given Jesus' response in the following verses, 
we can say that actually it goes a bit further because it seems that John is beginning to take offence. He's beginning to, as you see in verse 6, stumble on account of Jesus. Verse 6, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Actually, the implication there is, John, you are. He is stumbling on account of Jesus. Now, it's really interesting here. The word, that stumble word that we have in our Bibles here, it is a word in the original which it's scandal. We get our word scandal from it. And what he's saying is that Jesus is saying, John, you're being scandalized by me. Which means he's outraged. It's leading John to reject who Jesus is. And what we see in the following chapter, the rest of the chapter is Jesus basically responding to that question of John in verse 3. Is Jesus the one who has come? As God has promised, John has his doubts, and he's also being scandalised by it. And I hope you see how relevant this is today. There have been many times in history where Christians and uh, you know, Jesus, understanding Jesus, living out a Christian life, is, you know, it's just kind of ignored by people. Yeah, we'll let them carry on as they are, that's no problem whatsoever. That is not the case now. We live in a society that is increasingly, to use the word here, scandalised by Jesus, scandalised by Christians and Christian views. It isn't that Christians are now left alone. No, there are lobby groups that work very hard to silence and prosecute Christians for what they believe, they're morally and ethically. I guess there will be some of you here. Maybe you've come to support Neil and Lindsay, friends, family. Uh, but if, if really, if you'd got to know their views, you'd be scandalised by some of their views if you dared to get beyond the weather. See, people are no longer indifferent. The media is no longer indifferent towards Christians, towards Jesus, however much they claim to be tolerant. Hostility towards Christians and Christian thinking is now pretty much a sport in this country for many. Why? Because Jesus scandalises them. He's a scandal. People are outraged by him and what he says and what he teaches. Outraged into rejection. And that is exactly what this great, great man, John the Baptist, is here. And Jesus responds as we go through this, uh, showing John and, and us as well the kinds of people that that will not stumble on account of Jesus, that are more open, if you like, to Jesus. And I've put them down in your sheets here. Three groups that are open to meet the real Jesus, the poor, the violent, and the least. And each of these groups, as we go through, they have something to show us about how we can be open to who the real Jesus is. Now, as I said right at the beginning, I'm not going to apologise this could be quite uncomfortable at times, but these are Jesus' words. So let's, let's you know, point the finger there if you've got a problem. Let's have a look at the first group, shall we, who are open to Jesus. Who are, that is, who are not scandalised by him. And we see it's the poor. Look at verse 4 with me, if you can. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. 
So we see this uh, kind of summary. Jesus is going around and a whole bunch of people have been healed. Uh, uh, and they're all poor, aren't they, in many ways? In their own individual ways. They are poor through their uh, leprosy, through their, their deafness, uh, all sorts of disabilities. And then yeah, the good news is proclaimed, it says. It's interesting, that word is very carefully chosen there. Uh, literally, it means the gospel has been proclaimed. And that word gospel is a very, very particular word. It's used very, very rarely outside of the Bible. And it was always used in these kind of Greco-Roman times to describe an historic event. Now, if you were to go up to the British Library, it's just a few miles that way, isn't it? If you were to go up there and to read accounts within Greco-Roman history, whether it's a Jewish account or a Greek account, you'd be able to open them up and you'd be able to see that when someone particularly important uh, was kind of installed into a position, a, a gospel was recorded. It was a historic event. And that is the same use, word being used here. And it, it was an event that was announcing a new order or a new power that would transform it. Maybe society, maybe something politically. Here, we see it was transforming spiritually. He was proclaiming, Jesus was proclaiming a message that was ushering in a new order. Jesus proclaimed a gospel, that is a gospel that is rooted in history, good news, secured in the past, in a past historic but a completed work of Jesus, his life, and what would have been his death and resurrection to come. And I hope you see how radically different that is. Whether you look at you know, whatever world religion, world view that you look at. The Christian faith is wonderfully unique because it's not about what you and I can do or achieve. It is rooted instead in a gospel, a historic, completed event. A gospel that brings about a new order, a complete transformation if we dare to put our faith in it. See, all other religions... All of the kind of worldviews, or uh, including things like atheism, they're all about what you can do, what you can achieve. Uh, that is how you find your purpose, your meaning, and salvation. The Christian faith, instead, is a response to a historic, completed gospel. The gospel of Jesus. Instead, you see, the, 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 the great difference is that in every other world, where any way you think about God, bigger things, it's all about what I can do, what I can offer, how I can kind of clamber up to God or, or make my peace with life and everyone else. And the Christian faith is so unique because it's no, it says God has reached down to you. God has come down to us in Jesus and he's dealt with our rebellion and our ignoring of him. And he's opened up a new order. Jesus is proclaiming this good news, but who understands it? It's the poor. It's the poor. They're blessed because they don't stumble when they hear the good news. And rather they hear, and the implication is here, that they receive the good news. And it's a repeated refrain throughout of Matthew's Gospel, to be honest, throughout the whole of the New Testament. But why? 
Why are the poor not scandalised by Jesus? Uh, but John the Baptist is, this great, great man. Why is, why is he so kind of taking offence to Jesus? Many of us here will have come from very privileged backgrounds. Good education, we're relatively wealthy, I guess. We live in an area, many of us, if we look around, is relatively wealthy and, uh, and uh, you know, very privileged. If you look around the churches in this area as well, they're full of people like you and me, you know, privileged, uh, wealthy, and all these kind of things. And they teach about Jesus, but do they ever talk about the gospel? That is the good news that Jesus has come down in God's love to live a perfect life that we could not live. And he died in his love for us as he stretched out his arms on a cross to take a punishment, a justice that you and I deserve for our turning back on God. And then he rises to new life, offering us eternal life if we put our faith in him. Do you know the problem? The problem is that that gospel necessitates talking about my inadequacy. That gospel necessitates talking about my weakness, my rebellion. It necessitates talking about blood that was necessary in order to take a justice that I deserve. And if you're anything like me, anywhere nearly as horrible as me, you will hate to hear that. You will hate to hear that you are inadequate and unworthy and ineligible in and of yourself. Churches in the area and many around in this country will teach some stuff about Jesus and they'll therefore plump for the easy option. They'll go, oh, you know, let's teach that you've got to be kind, don't hate those around you, do a bit of justice. It's all right, it's all from the Bible, but they won't teach the gospel. That gospel that Jesus is proclaiming here. You go to other places around this country, perhaps less salubrious places, shall we say, and certainly if you dare to venture around the world where there are many, many of the people who are less privileged than us. And you will hear churches and people preaching the gospel, plain and simple. They dare to speak of Jesus who has come down, who is God in human flesh and who does miracles to demonstrate his kingdom power and who died on a cross for our sins in our place. And what happens? The poor receive that gospel so much more easily. Hence why the church is exploding in growth around the world. But why the difference? Oh, by the way, we're going to hate to hear this, but I think you all know it's true. See, the wealthy and the privileged look down on the less fortunate and the poor around the world. And with a patronising glee, they think that if only they knew what we knew. If only they were as wise and as clever as us and as educated or as enlightened. See, the wealthy think that the poor haven't understood that they can, we can slightly nuance Christianity. We can, we can update it a little bit. And I'm really sorry, but Jesus says to you a big fat no. So many around here, maybe, maybe you are one of them. So many people think that our intellects are offended by this gospel about Jesus. 
scandalised like John the Baptist was. Can I be really honest? In reality, it's probably just our pride. We just like to think about it. We get to a stage in life, look at us, so many of us have done so well, and we like to think that we've achieved what we have because of what we've done and who we are. Give ourselves a little bit of pat on the back, but the poor looking in go, they know the truth. They know the truth that life is not that simple, that you have got to this stage not because of who you are and how amazing you are. That's a little bit part of what it is. It's because you have been given stuff which you did have no control over. That you were born into a particular family into a, and went to a particular school, that you happen to be educated in the way you did. That is just an amazing blessing and counted as such. But you've been blessed in innumerable ways that are not in your control. And the poor know this. And they see and hear the gospel and they realise they need blessing too. They need a gift. They need a saviour. And the privileged and the wealthy, they hear and see the gospel and they think, oh, let's just take it as a good teacher. And, you know, a good example. And I'll, I'll, I'll kind of add to that a little bit and I'll make my way to God. I'm really sorry, but Jesus says no. The gospel says no. We all need God to intervene, to come down into our lives to save us from what we deserve. And Jesus is not saying that all poor people go to heaven and all rich people don't. There's lots of warnings. He's saying that the poor will be open and the poor will not stumble because of Jesus. The poor will see their need and come empty-handed to him. And it is those of us, like the poor, who know they are no different to the poor before God, they will be lifted up. And they, through faith in Jesus, will enter God's kingdom. Now, if you thought that was challenging, you wait till the next one. It's much shorter, by the way, so don't panic. Uh, we're nearly over. But the second group Jesus points to, the second group that are open to meet the real Jesus are the violent. That's a slightly provocative title, so let's jump in further. Um, why don't you just turn to uh, verse 12. Look down there, you'll see. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. Now, if I'm really honest, this has consumed so much of my week. I think it is possibly the hardest verse in the whole of the New Testament uh, to translate. In fact, it's virtually impossible in the English language. Because of the original. And it, it, the original's in a particular voice in English. We don't have an English word, if you like, to represent the original word. And it literally reads something like this. The kingdom of God is violencing. Again, we don't have an English word. Uh, violencing. Okay? And it's the violent who receive it. Now, you're sitting there going, what on earth are you meaning here? I think there are two options. And scholars think that probably Jesus is suggesting both. The problem is that when you write a translation like you've got in your hands before you, you've got to plump for one or the other, haven't you? And so you're in a pickle because you're wrong, whichever way you go. Okay, so that's the problem we have uh, before us. And if you look at all the other translations on the internet, you'll go, oh, they've, they've all gone for different stuff. The problem is we don't have a word for violencing. And so either Jesus is saying something like this, the kingdom of God is suffering violence and the violent will receive it, or he's saying something like the kingdom of God produces violence and moves ahead violently. Let me explain before you all kind of, kind of gloss over in a kind of, oh, grammar craziness, okay? 
Don't get bogged down with the grammar. Jesus is saying a bit of both. And I think, let me put it simply. I think he's saying, firstly, that the kingdom of God will come violently. That is, it will be established through his death. Jesus' death. And only the violent will receive it, he says. That is, when Jesus comes into your life, and we've sung about this already a little bit, he will do violence to you. That is, he will tear you apart. He will tear your life apart, and everything will be changed for good. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate Beatrice. He's the ultimate bringer of joy. But this funny phrase could also mean that the kingdom suffers violence. You see, if you are looking for a comfortable life, a kind of a therapeutic warm hug from Jesus, I'm afraid you just don't know Jesus. Jesus had to suffer the ultimate violence on a cross to establish his good kingdom. But he did that in love to save you. And if you come to Jesus, he offers you ultimate joy. But the reality is that you will suffer. You will struggle. It will not be easy at times. I wonder, has uh, any of you had surgery? I've had a surgery. I was kind of counting my surgeries the other day. It was quite miserable, really. But there we go. Surgery. If you've had surgery... Can you imagine saying to a surgeon, you don't want them to cut you open? That you know surgery would, you know, kind of do you good in the end, but you don't want that kind of violence in your life, thank you very much. I don't want a surgeon's knife on me, thank you. Or similarly, you might say, uh, you don't want them to do everything. Halfway through the surgery, just wake me up, I'd like to contribute too, I'll take over from here, thank you very much. Can you imagine saying that to a surgeon? No, what do you do? You breathe in the gas and they inject you with some so you like count to about two and a half and then you're gone. You completely surrender yourself to a surgeon, don't you? Why? You suffer violence in order to be healed. But you are totally in their control. Jesus says only the violence will be in the kingdom of God. That is, those who surrender themselves to him. Only they will raid it or enter it and know his ultimate healing. Last group, very quickly, the least. Look at verse 11 with me. I, I know I've scooted up. I don't normally do this. Normally I waltz through every single verse very kind of carefully. But I just wanted to kind of like give this kind of helpful structure, I hope, today. Look at verse 11 with me. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You see what we've seen? We've seen, we've seen that the poor understand that their need of, uh, to go, uh, for God to reach down and not for us to reach up. The violent aware of what Jesus has gone through and what they have to go through to enter the kingdom of God. And here we see the least. They understand as they meet Jesus they will be the ones, the least, who get into his good eternal kingdom that he's establishing. As I said, there's much going on in this chapter that I've not dealt with. But Jesus, in responding to John the Baptist, again and again, has been pointing to his credentials, but he's been pointing back to the Old Testament a lot, actually. A number of times, making illustrations between John and the prophet Elijah. And also, what he says in, flip back to verse 4, and you'll see there, that's actually a quotation from Isaiah chapter, verse, uh, chapter 35. And John the Baptist, as he would have heard this response from Jesus, would have clocked that. He would have known that straight away. 
And he would have known what that whole chapter was all about. It's about God coming back and putting everything right. And Jesus is trying to show John here that God will come back. And Isaiah 30, chapter 35, verse 4 says, he will come back with vengeance. Again, we don't like to hear that word. And he will deal with all the evil in the world. And he will judge the whole of history fairly. And what he does, as Isaiah 35 says, the blind will see, the lame will walk, all of those things that he's mentioned there in verse 4. But how? How is the big issue? See, the problem is that if God comes back now in vengeance, as he has promised, as he would come back, you know, for John the Baptist, the problem is he'd wipe us all off the face of the earth in his judgment. Because none of us deserve to be with him for eternity. What Jesus is proclaiming this gospel, he's announcing that, yes, God's judgment is going to come, but the good news is that, I hope you realise this, is God is going to fulfil his promise and vengeance is coming, but he's placed all of that judgment and he's pressed it all onto his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And not you. And not me. And Jesus is saying, John, yeah, he may be the great. Look at, look at the credentials of John. He's saying, John, he may be the greatest person, the most righteous person around. But even the biggest moral failure amongst us, if they trust in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that person, whatever awful things that they have done, they are more beautiful to God than even the most righteous John the Baptist. I hope you understand that. Christians are those that are understood that they're no better than anyone else. See, to be in God's kingdom for eternity is to, be op- is to open yourself, to acknowledge that you have nothing to offer God and that you are the least. You're just nothing. But if you trust in Jesus, you can have everything. Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater even than John the Baptist. So should we expect someone else? No. Do you see why John the Baptist is so offended, so scandalised? Do you see why you may be offended or scandalised by Jesus? Please do not let your pride cause you to stumble. Is that you'd be poor in spirit here and trust the violencing work of Jesus and humbly come to him empty handed, nothing, for it's the least who meet the real Jesus. Let's pray as we close.